Take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, a brief diversion for my exposition of James. I've been waiting uh, a while to preach this message, and I've been waiting for the opportune time because I just conducted a Q&A with Jeff, our elder candidate, as Michael said. So we are getting ready to install another elder, God willing, but also coming down the pipe very soon in our church, we are also getting ready to install some deacons. Something that's been a long time coming, and it's something that we're going to do soon. Therefore, in the life of this church, it's going to be something new. And whenever we start something new, especially something as important as that, what do we all need to do? We all need to go back to the source of truth to make sure that we're all on the same page. So this morning, my goal is to help us become unified, help us become um oriented on the same trajectory with regard to deaconship. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, the message this morning is entitled, Qualifications for Deacons. Okay? So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll read verses 8 to 13. The word of our God reads, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are above reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The Word of God. Will you pray with me one more time? Oh Lord, we come to a, such a text that's very practical and foundational for the life of the church. I pray that these words will be impressed on our hearts and we will have a zeal to apply them appropriately. Amen. Looking back and thinking about my childhood, some of my most memorable experiences as a young boy were not camping trips, fishing trips, hunting trips, international or domestic vacations, like trips to Disneyland, or some other type of popular pastime. I was the son of a truck driver. And I did not grow up doing the typical things that many young American boys grew up doing. My dad was a car guy. I would spend my Saturdays in the shop, working often, being paid very little to do some hard labor, like paint truck tires, shovel some fly ash out of the trailer, do some yard work. And I was, I was grateful, looking back, that my dad instilled that work ethic in me. But one thing else that was amazed me about my dad was his ability to spot a vintage car from a mile away and tell you the exact year, make, and model. We'd be driving down the road, and he would say, that's a 1964 Ford Fairlane. Dad, how could you tell that? Well, because of the fender style. 
So he, 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 he was, I guess, obsessed with cars. That was his hobby. That was his pastime. That, when he wasn't working, he was doing something with a motor. So you can imagine that I grew up not going fishing. I grew up going to car shows, tractor shows, swap meets. And it was common for us just to hop on the motorcycle on a Saturday afternoon after working just to see what was on the latest showroom floor. And I looked forward to those moments. I looked forward to those Saturdays. But more than that, I looked forward to our annual visit to the Route 66 Raceway. Every summer, we would go to this raceway, raceway and watch the NHRA Top Fuel Dragsters. Anybody know what the NHRA is? There you go. I'm not surprised Jack knew that. The National Hot Rod Association. And one of the things that the National Hot Rod Association does, they have what they call Top Fuel Dragsters. Okay? It's this very long-bodied vehicle with tires about that big, propelled by a very high horsepower engine. So we'd go to these and see these top fuel dragsters. They could do they could do three hundred and thirty miles an hour in a quarter mile in under four seconds. The sound of these racers topped out around 150 decibels, which is equivalent to the sound of a jet taking off. The nitro powered engines produce seven thousand horsepower. What kind of American male does it get excited about a vehicle that produces 7,000 horsepower? Which is 37 times that of an average streetcar. So you can imagine just the, just the sound and the feel of that high-powered vehicle taking off down the track. It was very exhilarating. So you could see why a 10-year-old boy would look forward to that every year. In fact, I hope to take my children there someday. Another good thing about this event, it just wasn't, it just wasn't a three-hour event. And like you go to a football game, you spend two hours in traffic, and then you have to deal with the crowd, stand up for three hours at a football game, and then go home. No, this was a three-day event. Friday and Saturday was reserved for qualification. Sunday was the competition rounds. The fastest 16 who qualified on Friday and Saturday would earn a spot in the race. And only those racers who qualified could get the opportunity to be recognized as an official competitor and everyone else were spectators. Only those who qualified, only those who met the standards, they, they, they raced according to the rules and they finished the quickest. Not only do Secular institutions like the NHRA require its participants to achieve specific qualifications to function in a certain capacity, an official capacity. The Church of God does too. There are qualifications to be a member of the body of Christ. First and foremost, what is it? To believe, to be saved, right? And then every local church has their own standards for becoming a member. But to be an officer in the church, an elder or a deacon, the Bible lays out very specific and fairly detailed qualifications. And we, we do good 
to heed these qualifications and see them put into practice. A few months ago, I preached 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7, that revealed four standards for elders to attain and maintain in ministry. But now, as I alluded to, I feel like it's the right time in the life of our church to bring up the office of deacon. Because in the very near future, we are going to be appointing at least one elder, and Lord willing, a few deacons. Before we do that, we all need to be, be on the same page. What do you look for in a deacon? If somebody were to ask you that question, what is a qualified deacon supposed to be? Your immediate response should be 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. 2,000 years ago, Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, provided young Pastor Timothy with instructions concerning the qualifications for those who wish to serve in the official role as deacon. And those qualifications have not changed one iota. Therefore, I'm not going to go deep into the background this one of the book. It's important, but to take a time, I'm not going to go deep into the background here. We're going to go right to the qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. There's five qualifications for deacons to achieve so that the work of service in the life of our local church can be done for the glory of God. As faithful Christians, understanding these qualifications will help you to discern who should be appointed as a deacon in our assembly. It's absolutely imperative that we put the right people in leadership both in the position of elder and the position of deacon, for obvious reasons. But namely, first and foremost, if you put the wrong people in the place of leadership, there will be corruption, there will be scandal, there will be disunity. Every church in history that has been the recipient or spectacle of scandal it involves church leadership. You don't hear on CNN church members falling due to an immoral failure. It's always the pastor. And when that happens, the church of God is mocked and there's a black stain left on our reputation. So we must install the right leaders. Before we jump to these qualifications and unpack them, I want you to note something. There's no discussion of personality. There's no discussion of personal preferences. There's no discussion about political viewpoints. You know, we can sit down and talk about the Republican debate the other day, but that should not be a discussion when it comes to appointing church leadership. As important as immigration is to our country, it's off the table when it comes to church leadership. Amen? Okay. All right. Some of you might not be convinced about that. Physical appearance. There's nothing in here about physical appearance or style. There's nothing in here about education level, experience level, age, community involvement, demeanor even. I've heard lots of church leaders be criticized because they don't smile enough. 
You know, that's not a qualification. Or popularity. When we, when we in our American churches elect leadership, please understand it's not a popularity contest. It's not like the presidential election where people just vote because they like the way he looks. That's not it. The unity of deacons in their qualifications is in their spiritual qualifications. So let's unpack these. The first qualification for a deacon is that he or she must display an exemplary life. Deacons must display an exemplary life. Verses 8 and 11. It says, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. And then drop down to verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now this word deacon, it's just a transliteration of the Greek word diakonos. And it simply means minister, servant, or table waiter. The first deacons are installed in Acts chapter 6 for the purpose of alleviating the workload of the apostles and to help meet the tasks that are needed, that were needed, but the apostles didn't have time for. So deacons, in this sense, they were helping. They were assisting. They were serving the bishops or overseers or elders or pastors. And this is why they're called deacons. It just means servant. In fact, it would be totally legitimate to just remove the word deacon from our vocabulary and just say servant. Because deacon is simply a transliteration of the Greek word diakonos. Whereas the office of elder is often ignored in the modern church, the office of deacon is greatly misunderstood. Based on the New Testament model, the role of a deacon is mainly to be a servant. Because the church needs servants to provide logistical support so the elders can focus on the word of God and prayer. And just as the apostles delegated administrative responsibilities to the servants, the seven, Acts 6, the elders today are to delegate certain responsibilities to the deacons so that the elders can focus their efforts elsewhere. Now, what are some common areas of service that deacons can serve in today? First of all, facilities. In other words, deacons can manage the church property. This would include making sure that the place of worship is prepared, sound systems up and running. We have some good servants in our church that are doing those things. Praise the Lord. How about benevolence? Similar to what we see in Acts 6, deacons can be uh, put in charge of distributing to the widows, distributing to the physical needs of, of those in our midst. How about finances? While elders should oversee the finances of the church because they're the ones that are charged by God to oversee everything, it's best for deacons to be allowed to handle the day-to-day operations. This would include 
collecting offerings, counting offerings, keeping records, and so on. Another example, how about ushering? Ushering. The, the deacons could be responsible for distributing bulletins, seating the congregation, preparing the elements for communion. And just kind of a catch-all category, just, just overall logistics. Deacons should be available to help in a variety of ways so that the elders, pastors, can concentrate on teaching and shepherding. Now listen, at SVBC, we need servants. We need servants. Our church will not grow, our church will not become healthy if we do not install deacons who are qualified to handle these things. So if God convicts you and spurs your heart to say, I want to become a deacon and I want to help meet this logistical need, I'm welcoming you. And I can speak on behalf of Michael and Jeff. We need you. It's not that we're above mowing the grass. It's not that we're above getting the crackers ready for communion. It's not that we're above changing the light bulbs. Absolutely not. But if one of us has to be the ones to cut the grass and do everything else, the ministry of the Word will suffer. Paul goes on to say, likewise, which could be said in the same manner. They need to be men of dignity. Deacons are to be men of dignity, which means they're to be reverent and reputable and dignified. It, it contains the idea of being serious in mind as well as character. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a controlled sense of humor. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with cracking a joke here and there. There's nothing wrong with having some lightheartedness. But, you know, that's not the qualification. A deacon does not have to be funny. But he is to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. That means he's not frivolous. He doesn't take serious things lightly. He's not flippant. He's not silly. He's serious. Secondly, he's not to be double-tongued. Double-tongued. It means to speak twice. To be double-worded. It refers to somebody saying one thing to a person and then another thing to another. Kind of like you, you tell somebody one part of the story and then you tell somebody else another part of the story and it's contradictory. It's being double-tongued, not being consistent. It could mean being a tale-bearer, suggesting the idea of an inconsistent testimony. That could lead to disaster. Secondly, excuse me, thirdly, not addicted to much wine. Not addicted to much wine. So deacons are to distance themselves from the intoxicating effects of wine and the idolatrous use of it. Key phrase, idolatrous use of it. Think to who Paul is writing and where he's at. He is writing to Timothy in one of the most pagan cities 
in the world at that time, Ephesus. So part of pagan religion in that time was to include drunkenness and other perversions in their form of worship. So he's saying, distance yourself from that idolatrous use of alcohol. Addicted means to occupy oneself with. In other words, a deacon must not attend to a large amount of wine and become drunk. Now, does this mean that if a deacon or an elder gets caught being drunk one time, bam, you're gone? No. Just like we can't expect leaders to be perfect. The idea here is not perfection, it's pattern. I guess to bring it a little home for us, if I see a deacon stumble out of Pete's, keyword stumble, I'm not going to care if you go there, but if, if we see one another start stumbling out of Pete's, that could be an issue, right? That, that, that could be a man who's, or a woman who's proven to be given to much wine, occupied with wine. Other translations say, not drinking a lot of wine, or not given to excess of drinking. The NLT says they must not be heavy drinkers. And again, the message is always funny for us. It says, not too free with the bottle. Not too free with the bottle. How's that for a paraphrase? So, it doesn't mean also that the use of alcohol is permitted totally. It's just saying that the deacon cannot be an alcoholic. Simple. Then, the deacon must not be fond of sordid gain. The ESV says, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, why would this be listed here? Well, because deacons, remember, deacons would routinely handle money as part of their duties. Makes sense, right? So, as they were distributing money to widows and others in need, if a person was a lover of money or a greedy person, that could present some pretty strong temptation, couldn't it? So you want to make sure that the people that you put in place of deacon, especially elders, they are not lovers of money. They are not pursuing material things as their primary focus in life. Because you put a man or a woman in charge of money who loves money, you're asking for that money to disappear. (laughs) So this is an important qualification. And you know, to a degree, we, we all, we all gotta be careful with our love of money, don't we? We all gotta be careful that we don't become too focused on our material possessions, because it can become an idol. Now, drop down to verse 11. Verse 11 also addresses the character of a deacon. It says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, we're going to address a little bit of controversy right here. What do we take it as, women or wives? Some translations say women, some say their wives. What is it? Well, you're going to hear my position. We see a significant difference in translation that carries with it significant implications. If it's translated women, you could conclude that it is permissible 
for women to serve in the official office of deacon. If it's translated, their wives, then many end up taking the dogmatic stance that women cannot be deacons. So the center of this debate about whether a woman can serve as a deacon revolves around the translation of this word. So, what does the diligent Bible student do? Puts on his exegesis hat. Put it on. Okay. We start with the original, right? The text is the plural form of gune, which we get the word gynecology from. And depending on its context, it could be translated as women or wives. Uh-oh. That doesn't solve it. If we're going to be honest exegetes, we can't cherry-pick the, de- the lexical meaning here. So, guess what? We are confronted with another interpretive decision that's primarily reached by considering... Yes! You guys, are, you guys are becoming expert Bible students. Both the immediate and broad. What, what, how the word is used in this paragraph, in this letter, and then how it's used in the rest of the New Testament. Now, there are several reasons why an exegetical case can be made in favor of deaconesses. So, it's my position that women can serve as a deacon as long as she is functioning as a deacon. Key qualifier. I'm going to give you four arguments, real quick. Four reasons why I think deacons should include women. First, uh, the word deacon itself means servant. It doesn't mean overseer. It doesn't mean pastor, elder. It doesn't mean that. A servant has no authority. A servant is a servant. So therefore, if, if, if a woman is not placed in an authoritarian or authority role, then let them serve. We understand, based on biblical teaching, that uh, you know we're all in agreement here, I think, that, that the role of elder pastor is reserved for men. Because Paul said in 2 Timothy 2 that I, permot, per not, I permit not a woman to teach or have authority over a man. But if, 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 if the deacon isn't given authority to make decisions, judicial decisions, then I say let her serve. But if that's not enough, the second argument is that the original language does not say there. Now I guess if, unless you have a, a, a Greek... New Testament and a good commentary. You're going to have to trust me on this one right now. I promise you, it does not, there is no possessive pronoun there. It's absent. That possessive pronoun there to justify connecting the plural form of gune with deacon in the preceding verses, you've got to add it. And in the ESV, where they go a little bit astray here, is they don't italicize the word there to show that it's an addition. The NAS, the NIV, the ASV, and the message all read women. The ESV, New King James, KJV, NLT, NET, say their wives. So which is it? 
should be women. Thirdly, the larger context of the New Testament uses diakonos to refer to women. Phoebe in Romans 16 verse 1 is described as a diakonos. She was obviously highly esteemed by Paul and trusted to the degree that she was, she was recognized by name and she was given the immense responsibility to carry the letter of Romans to, to Rome. Fourthly, the larger context of the New Testament word diakonos is used in a general sense. Many other passages use the form of diakonos and its translated servant. Matthew 23, verse 11, Mark 9:35, John 2:5, John 2:9. I could go on. So th- th- those are four basic arguments why I believe qualified women can serve as a deacon. Because the larger context general sense of the word, the meaning of deacon itself, the absence of that pronoun, I think that's a pretty good argument. So the Bible does not prohibit qualified women from serving in this role. As I said, as long as she has not functioned as an elder. One um, well-known theologian, B.B. Warfield, said this, He said, a thriving church cannot do without deaconesses as its organs for doing good. I agree. So ladies, we need you. Ladies fulfill a very vital role in the life of a local church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Paul goes on to say likewise. Again, could be translated in the same manner. And it, and it serves to introduce a new but related category of deacons. Dignified. They must be dignified. It uses the same word here that uses in verse 8 to describe male deacons. Female deacons also must lead serious lives. People should hold them in high regard because of their spiritual devotion. Then, I've got to move a little quick here. They must not be malicious gossips. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking about this one. Not malicious gossips. Literally, it's false accuser. The Greek word here is diabolos, which is translated devil. So you could translate this, not devils. Don't be a devil. Devil simply just means slander or false accuser. It refers to the spreading of lies, which the devil is known for, right? Satan. Jesus called the, the Pharisees um, uh, children of the devil, being who is the father of lies. In Proverbs 10, verse 18, it says, He who spreads slander is a fool. And in Proverbs 6, verse 16 and following, it says there are six things the Lord hates. Seven, which are an abomination to him. And in verse 9, verse 19 of Proverbs 6, it says, A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among the brothers. God hates that. 
he hates those who utter lies and spread strife. Now let me ask you a question. What will split a church quicker than a slander? What will split a church and kill it quicker than a group of liars? So deacons, especially, must be known to be truth-tellers and edifying talkers. There should be no room, no, no uh, patience for malicious gossip and slander. Then the deaconess, deacon, must be temperate. The same applies to the elder in verse 2. It means to be alert, to be watchful, to be clear-headed. It refers to being free from the influence of passion or lust or emotion. You know, being self-controlled in your emotions, not letting your emotions get the best of you. Having knee-jerk reactions. He must be sound in his thinking. And then he must be faithful in all things. It just means that he should be trustworthy. He should be dependable in in every area of responsibility of service. That's the first qualification. He must have a exemplary life. The second qualification for deacons is this. Deacons must comprehend sound doctrine. Deacons must comprehend sound doctrine in verse 9. But holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. What's the mystery of faith? Well, the mystery of faith, it's all the revealed truths of the Christian religion. Most importantly, and most assuredly, the gospel itself. So when you see this word, mystery of faith, in the New Testament, don't think uh, something out of a contemporary novel or suspense film. It was a common Pauline expression to denote something that was once hidden in the past, but is now revealed to those with spiritual discernment. It refers to that which was hidden or was in secret, but is now known through the revelation of God. Paul's conversion, before his, before his conversion, he was blind to the identity of Jesus, wasn't he? He sought to kill Christians, that he was breathing threats and murder against the way. And in the same sense, all unbelievers are blind. The true understanding and knowledge of the gospel is hidden to them. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, that the truth is, uh, they cannot see the light of the gospel because they are blind. So this, this phrase, it, it conveys a sense of wonder and amazement and understanding of God's place of salvation through Christ. It encompasses every mystery of the Incarnation. It encompasses the indwelling um, ministry of Christ in the believer. The unity of Jews and Gentiles. The saving gospel. How the law works. The rapture of the church. The basic core doctrines of our faith. Deacons must hold to those with a clear conscience. What does a clear conscience? Well, first of all, your conscience, it's that faculty of the soul that distinguishes right from wrong, isn't it? And And everyone has one, even the unbeliever. Because the law of God is written on our hearts, Romans 2. But what does it mean for a deacon to hold fast to the mystery of faith, the teachings of the Christian religion, 
with a clear conscience. Well, simply put, he must have a mature understanding of Christ and the gospel so that he could live out his faith and not have any tension in his mind. He must serve Christ knowing who he is, why he deserves our utmost worship and loyal service. There can't be any doubting. There can't be any, any like, oh, I don't know if that's true. That servant would be a phony servant. He must hold fast to sound doctrine with understanding so that he could serve Christ in the church with a clean conscience. I mean, if I stood up here and, and I was wrestling with the sovereignty of God and salvation or even the deity of Christ, I would, my conscience would drive me nuts. If I stood up here and wasn't convinced in my conscience that I am supposed to be doing what I'm doing, my conscience would be constantly pricking me. So it's the same thing with deacons. They serve with a clean conscience, knowing why they're doing what they're doing and knowing why they're living the life of service. Thirdly, the third qualification for deacons is that deacons must prove faithful service. Verse 10. These men must also first be tested. Tested. In other words... Um, we don't just put anybody in there that has a heartbeat, right? They have to be tested. It indicates an ongoing test, not just one time, not just a probationary period. They are always being tested. We see in Acts 6, verse 3, that the apostles told their disciples to choose deacons who were tested in two areas. They had to be men of good reputation. What does that imply? To develop a good reputation requires testing, doesn't it? It requires some time. And men who were full of the Spirit and wisdom. In other words, they were actually saved and they knew how to apply their doctrine. Another thing this implies is that there must be a selection process. It needs to be a selection process for who we put in leadership, deacons included. And then, after they are tested, Paul says, let them serve. It's the verb form of diakonos. It means to wait tables. Let them wait tables. Let them serve dinners. This is what they did in the early church. They helped the poor and the sick to, again, alleviate the overseers, so that they can focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. That's the job of a deacon. They are the ones and the elders delegate tasks, logistical tasks, tasks to then energize and mobilize the church to make it happen. Now, when there aren't designated people set apart for that work, what happens? When there aren't designated people set aside for the logistical needs of the church, what happens? I already told you. Something suffers. The church suffers. It does not function according to God's design. 
And when something does not function according to God's design, it suffers. It suffers by allowing things to go neglected. It suffers by allowing the elders to be distracted from the ministry of prayer and the word. And when things don't get happened by default, either don't get ha- they don't don't get done, or The ministry of preaching, teaching gets neglected. And when that's neglected, your soul will suffer. So if the elders, so let the elders preach, pray, and teach. I already said that one. Lead and oversee. And let the deacons serve if, there's another condition here, if they are beyond reproach. It's the same qualification for elders. It means not being able to be accused in court. In other words, that there is nothing for which to accuse him of. It doesn't refer to sinlessness, but the deacon must not have a life marred by some scandal or sinful character of life. Fourthly, the fourth qualification, deacons must demonstrate a stable household. Deacons must demonstrate a stable household. Verse 12. Deacons must be the husbands of one wives, one wife and good managers of their children and not of their own households. Literally, it's one woman man. It, it doesn't refer to how many wives a person may have. It refers to the minister's sexual fidelity, not marital status. It refers to whether or not he is faithful in word and thought and deed to or her spouse. It must be good managers. It means literally to, to, to cause to stand before, to be over and to preside and to rule. It speaks to the deacon's overall ability to manage all of the affairs of his or her household. Now, you read this and you think, well, how does that jive with the husband's role in the home to be the head of the household? Because we know that the scripture teaches that, that the man is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And she is to submit herself to him as unto the Lord. So how is it that the man is called the head and the manager of the household? But here we see, if we're going to make an argument for female deacons, how, how, how are you going to have two managers in a household? Fair question? Am I the only one that would ask that? Well, there is a sense, even though that the man is the head of the household, being primarily responsible for the welfare of the home, there is a sense in which women are commanded to manage the home as well. Like a homemaker, like a housewife. First Timothy 5.14 says that women are supposed to keep the house. And Titus 2, women are responsible to work at home. So in the Christian worldview, we say that the woman's primary place of business is the home. She's to manage the affairs of the home under the oversight of her husband. So this applies to women as well. They must be able to demonstrate that their children are under control. That they are teaching their children the faith. That they are discipling their children. We could go on about that. We could we could give many more examples of 
what an orderly household looks like by the sake of time, I need to go. Fifthly and finally, deacons must be assured of their rewards. Add, if you're taking notes, add an S on the end of rewards. Reward. Verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Two rewards here. First, they obtain for themselves a high standing. Literally, it means um, they have elevated to a rank or degree. It could be stated that they've, they've, been, they've been placed on a pedestal. You could also say it means, it means that these deacons who have served well, key qualifier, are esteemed or held in high regard in the church. Implication, faithful servants will be respected and honored by those who serve. How many of you can say amen to that? How many of you have witnessed in your Christian life some of the most faithful, hardworking, committed believers and you have said, I want to be like that person? That's the example I need. Well, what you have done is you, and so to speak, you've placed that person on a pedestal. You've elevated them to a, to a place of where you esteem them. How many of you have people in the church you've esteemed? I hope so. Yes. So have I. And we don't, we don't esteem our spiritual heroes because of titles, because of whatever else. We esteem our spiritual heroes because of their faithful service to Christ's church. Okay? You know, it's no secret that one of my spiritual heroes is a man named John MacArthur. And I'm not ashamed of saying that. Because guess what? That man has been preaching from one pulpit for 45 years. How many people can say that? And he's been free from any type of scandal or failure and has faithfully preached the word of God without waver for decades. So it's right to esteem those who have served well. Secondly, the second reward is to have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It means having boldness or assurance. For those who labor for the Lord, those who most actively love Him by serving Him are most confident in Him. That is to say that faithful service will deepen the deacon's faith and strengthen his relationship with God. How about you? When you serve Christ, don't you feel a sense of satisfaction? Don't you feel a sense of calling and fulfillment? If you never have, then you have never served. That's a problem. Every time I, I, get, I get down from this platform, every time I walk in my office to open up the next passage, I, throughout all the challenges, through all the letdowns of ministry, I still feel a deep sense of satisfaction and fulfillment in what I'm doing. And it shouldn't be different for you. I'm just doing, I'm just functioning different. It should be the same for you. So let me conclude here. There's no Seahawks game, so you guys can steal it longer, right? <laughs> let me conclude here. 
the five qualifications for deacons to achieve so that the work of the ministry can be done for the glory of God alone. Number one, deacons must display an exemplary life. They must comprehend sound doctrine. They must prove faithful service. They must demonstrate a stable household. And they must be assured of their rewards. So brothers and sisters, there's something we have to keep in mind about these standards, these qualifications. Let me just say that these character qualities apply to everyone. Everyone. These character qualities are the goal of every Christian. The difference is that the person put in the place of a deacon or elder is supposed to be the example of these. So this is your goal. Don't read 1 Timothy 3 and think, oh, that's just for deacons and elders. I can pass that. I ain't going to ever be an elder or a deacon, so I can skip. No. All of these things are the goal for every Christian, not just church leadership. So I pray that my fellow elders and the future deacons of this church will be the example that Christ intends us to be for the church and for this community. Let me just give one last final exhortation. This church does not have deacons right now. We have a few people functioning as deacons. Very few. We need people to step up and become a deacon or deaconess. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you that you have given us your word and we can explain it and understand it objectively. I pray that your spirit will move among us and you will raise up leaders within our midst. You will raise up qualified elders and deacons so that we can do the work of the ministry for your glory alone. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.